welcome to our worship on Sunday the 18th of July in a week where the news has been dominated by racism and disruption and disturbance and division in society it's appropriate that what we're going to be talking about today is oneness and inclusivity and acceptance and we're going to be talking a lot about worship and prayer as well. May God bless and challenge us through the readings, the songs, the prayers and the message. Let's begin with a wonderful song of worship. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul, O my soul, worship his whole. Sing like never before, oh my soul, I'll worship your holy name. The sun comes up, it's a to sing your song again whatever may pass whatever lies before me let me be singing when the evening comes bless the
failing the end draws near my time has come still my soul will sing your praise unending So let's join with the psalmist in encouraging our souls to bless the Lord. Oh, my soul, don't forget all his benefits. He's given his life for you. He's forgiven your sins. He's constantly at work through the Holy Spirit, making you more like Jesus, more patient, more kind, more conscious of God's will and God's ways. Oh, my soul, bless the Lord. We thank you, Lord, for each new day. Sometimes we look forward in excitement. Other times we are fearful. But we know and believe that you are present in all of our circumstances. Your loving kindness towards us never fails and your patience is never exhausted. We are not like that. We speak unkind words and think wrong thoughts about you, about others and about ourselves. We know what we should do but we fall short. Forgive us Lord and may we truly intend in our hearts to put things right and change our ways. We know we will have to keep confessing our sins for as long as we live. But while we're very happy that we can rely on your grace, we're very sorry that we're not becoming more like you. Hasten the day, Lord, when we will be changed, when all of our thoughts and words will be glorifying to you. May we see that change beginning in our lives today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's say together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, for ever and ever. Amen. Let's listen to our first reading from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, read for us by Sarah Wardle. Jew and Gentile reconciled through Christ. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. In keeping with the theme of that reading, we're going to listen again to our first hymn but this time in Farsi, Persian. The live version of this service will be at Trinity Ellesmere Port where we often welcome friends from Iran. I hope this song will make them feel at home and that you enjoy it too. It's a way of reminding ourselves that we're part of the worldwide church which welcomes people of every tribe and nation. It also leads us into prayer for the world and for all of its people. Bless the Lord, O my soul.
در صبحین و وطلوی تازه سرودین و برزبان دارم هران چه پیش آید تا که شب فرود آید سرود همده تو برده So let's pray. As we read and listen to the news this week, there are three big stories which drive us to prayer. First of all, we pray against the ugly racism and divisions in society revealed after England's defeat in the Euro 2020 football tournament. Let's pray. Lord, we are deeply hurt even to be part of a nation like ours which can speak and write such evil things as we've seen this week. We pray for Marcus Rashford, Bukayo Saka and Jaden Sancho. 
that you will enable them to survive and thrive in the face of racial hatred and that their example will help to drive this curse from our society. We examine ourselves and ask that you will reveal our own deep-seated prejudices and bring them to the light. In Jesus' name, Amen. We're hurt and disappointed that the United Kingdom has decided to reduce its aid to those in need around the world, abandoning many to poverty, hunger, disease, at a time when needs are greatest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the world needs your care more than ever. There are wars and rumours of wars. The poor are always with us. Diseases and disasters are overwhelming nations. We pray for those in particular need just now. Afghanistan enduring rebellion. Syria still at war. Uprisings in Burkina Faso and Tigray and the Central African Republic driving millions out of their homes. We pray against the rise of militants who seek to overthrow governments. Have mercy, Lord. Bring healing and forgiveness to shattered peoples. In Jesus' name. Amen. We're in perilous times. In the third wave of Covid in our country and other countries are suffering even more. With even fewer resources. Let's pray. Loving God. We ask first for our own country, our own neighbourhoods, that there will be a continued determination to look after one another in every way. We pray for wisdom in government, for strength and persistence in the health services and an outpouring of common sense and consideration across the nations. In Jesus' name. And we pray for those countries in the world which are suffering even more, where there's not such access to vaccines and where there's not such great health services and where there's not such relief for the poverty that people suffer when they are unable to work. Lord, be there, we pray, and may your church be there and may we do what we can to support the efforts that are going on around the world. In Jesus' name. Amen. We recognise that we are one world, one human race, as we listen to the hymn, In Christ there is no East or West.
child, true hearts everywhere their high communion find. His service is the golden cord, close binding humankind. Join hands then, all the human race, whatever your nation be. Christ now meets both east and west, in him meets south and north. All Christ-like souls are one in him throughout the whole wide earth, throughout the whole wide earth, throughout the whole Our gospel reading follows on from the prayers and song we've just shared. We see Jesus caring for and healing all who come to him, whoever they may be. Sarah reads for us from Mark chapter 6. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him, all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognised them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. When they crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognised Jesus. They ran through the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns or countryside, they placed the sick in marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed.
Our message today is not based on the gospel reading we've just heard. It's based on the Old Testament reading from the second book of Samuel. Sarah is going to read to us. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, Tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people, Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them any more, as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from your enemies the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise, you, raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. David knew what it was to be weary and worn and sad, to thirst and hunger both physically and spiritually. You just have to read his Psalms to see that. Like the deer thirsts for the water, so my heart thirsts after you. He'd experienced triumph and adulation and had endured hatred, rejection and persecution. And now he was king and in a place of great strength and blessing. Today's psalm, Psalm 85, which we don't have time to read, says this. I have found my servant David. With my holy oil I have anointed him. My hand shall always remain with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. 
The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and steadfast love will be with him. And in my name his horn shall be exalted. What amazing promises God gave to him. What amazing expressions of the love of God. David wants to respond to this love. And he also wants to make his position even more secure by establishing a glorious place of worship in his capital city, Jerusalem, the city of David, which he had personally conquered and added to the kingdom. You could argue that this was to some extent a political move to exalt his capital and make it a place of pilgrimage for his subjects. But David, despite all his faults, always had a true streak of godliness. God called him a man after my own heart. What a compliment. When we dream dreams and have visions of ways of serving and honouring God, there are bound to be mixed motives. We're human and fallible. But often God accepts what we have and what we are, rather than holding us at arm's length until we're pure and holy enough to bring our offering of worship and service. It's just as well. So David determines that he will build a magnificent temple, a house fit for God. Nathan, his prophet, at first commends him and says, it's the right thing to do. We do need to be careful about jumping to the support of something that looks good. But God speaks to Nathan and gives him a different message for David. Are you the one to build me a house to live in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent and a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about among all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the tribal leaders of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? I didn't ask you to do this for me, says God. Rather than you building a house for me, I will build a house for you. Look what I've done for you so far, brought you up from a place of obscurity as a shepherd and made you a prince in Israel, cut off all your enemies and established you on the throne. And that's just a taster. I will plant my people Israel in the land I've given them and establish the house of David as a dynasty forever. I will give you a son who will establish the kingdom after you. He will build me a house. So the temple was actually built by Solomon, the son of David, whose name means peace, not by David, whose life really was marked by warfare and bloodshed. Straight away, this story gives us some important things to think about. First of all, don't assume that just because something's good, it's the right thing to do just now. Second, be aware of your motives. Are we seeking God's glory or is there a little bit of ourselves mixed in, meeting our own very understandable need to feel that we're making a contribution, that we're getting some recognition for what we do? Third, there are things that are appropriate for us to do and others best done by other people. David was prepared by God as a warrior 
to subdue and bring peace to the land through warfare. He started off as a shepherd fighting off bears and lions, you remember. Solomon's gift from God was wisdom to rule that land. Let's try and understand what God has made us and follow our own gifts and calling rather than the fads and preferences of the day. But there's a bigger story here and one which runs right up to our day and age. What kind of house does God desire? What should we be building? Where should our energies go? In this encounter between God, the prophet Nathan and King David, we see two houses. The physical temple that David wanted to build as a house for God. And the house of David, the spiritual dynasty, which God determined and promised to build. Let's look at them one by one and see where they overlap and how they eventually meet up. As we read in the Bible passage, the first temple was actually an ornate tent built to careful specifications by Moses and carried round in the wilderness, erected wherever the people camped, whether for days or months. The design, construction and materials of the tent, the tabernacle, are full of significance and people have spent years unravelling them, sometimes a bit imaginatively. But like most things in the Bible, there are genuine depths in the details. The temple built by Solomon was in effect a permanent tabernacle, a permanent dwelling for God marking the settlement of Israel in the land God gave them. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may live in their own place and be disturbed no more, God says in verse 10 of this passage. But if you jump ahead and read the account of the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, you'll see that Solomon was under no illusions about what this house was. He was very clear that this is not a house for God to live in but it's a place for his people to come and meet him. Here's what he says. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Yet, give attention to your servant's prayer in his plea for mercy, Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open towards this temple night and day, this place of which you said, my name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays towards this place. It was a place for us to meet with God and for God to meet with us, not somewhere for God to spend his time. In the Hindu religion, you'll find that the little models of the gods and goddesses are, are treated uh, in a very, to us, strange way. They are put to bed for the afternoon. They are left offerings of food. The place where they are is seen as the place where they live. Not so with God. At the heart of the tabernacle was an altar. And you'll recall that throughout their wanderings, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob built altars at places where God met them. 
sacrifice is at the heart of our relationship with God. Without the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, prefigured by all of these Old Testament pictures, there'd be no access to God, no relationship. You can see this even more clearly when you realise where the temple was actually built. On Mount Moriah, where Abraham brought Isaac to be sacrificed, and where a ram became a substitute. It all comes together, doesn't it? Solomon's temple was actually destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BC when Israel was captured and taken into exile and was rebuilt in 515 on their return on a much smaller scale. When it was completed, the returning exiles old enough to remember the original temple wept with joy at seeing it rebuilt and with sorrow at what they'd lost and what a pale imitation it was of what the original temple had been. In 28 BC, Herod the Great renovated the temple, continued renovating it right through the time of Jesus. And it was finally destroyed by the Romans in AD 70 when they put down a revolt by the people of Israel. You might remember Jesus makes reference to this as a prophecy when he's speaking in the temple towards the end of his life in Matthew chapter 24. So the temple was of great significance for the Jewish people and its remains are still revered. Most people have seen the fervent prayers offered at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. But something of great significance happened with the coming of Jesus, which changed this forever. Let's go back to what David says in the passage from 2 Samuel 7 to what God says to David. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come forth from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. When God says he will build a house for my name, maybe he is still talking about the physical temple, but maybe it goes beyond that. God has previously said to David, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Look at the language he used. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God doesn't make rash promises. He wasn't ignorant of what the future held, that after Solomon, the kingdom would divide into two warring factions and that Solomon's descendants actually wouldn't continue to rule over a united Israel. Matthew and Luke carefully record in their genealogies that Joseph and Mary were of the house of David. That, of course, is why the birth of Jesus took place in Bethlehem, the town of their ancestor, David. You remember the census and everyone returning to their ancestral homes. Jesus is the heir of David's throne. As the hymn writer says, great David's greater son. Jesus silenced the Pharisees on one occasion by posing them the question, whose son is the Messiah? They replied with the conventional understanding, he is David's son. They knew the Messiah would be the son of David. So says Jesus, quoting one of David's Psalms, Psalm 110, how is it that David calls him Lord? 
because they were silenced by this. They had no answer. They couldn't conceive of the fact that the Messiah, the son of David, would be the one who was so much greater than David. Not just the inheritor of David's throne and the promises to David, but the one who would initiate a complete line. God promises David that he will establish an everlasting kingdom, an heir who will reign forever. Could this be Jesus? I think it is. Notice he also says to David, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. He was directly speaking about Solomon, of course, but I'm sure the words carry a deeper significance that fatherhood is part of the whole promise made to David's line. Okay, so we've got quite deeply into all that. So let's summarise what we've seen so far. The physical temple was very significant as a place where God promised to meet with his people and he both permitted and even ordained that it be built and ordained how sacrifice and worship should take place there. It's all in the book of Leviticus and again it's full of pictures of the way God through Christ the perfect priest would one day present the perfect sacrifice. Have a look at the letter to the Hebrews, it's all spelt out there. But alongside that physical house of God is a more significant house that God himself is building, the house of David, the line through which the Messiah would come. And now, in the life of Jesus, the two strands come together in a clear and remarkable way. Do you remember one of the charges brought against Jesus at his trial? This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Read that in Matthew 26. As he died, some taunted him with this. You, who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. Of course, Jesus was talking about the new spiritual temple, the temple of his body which would be destroyed and raised from the dead on the third day. The resurrected Christ is the new, final, complete and perfect temple, the place where we meet God, the place where God hears our prayers, the place where the perfect sacrifice cleanses us for all time from every sin. The two different strands we see in 2 Samuel 8, the house of God that David wanted to build and the house of David that God wanted to build, they've come together. But there's even more. Because that temple, that body of Christ, continues on earth in the form of the church. Throughout the New Testament letters, again and again, the church is described as his body and we are described as the temple of the Holy Spirit, God's representative on earth. We read about this in the letter to the Ephesians earlier in the service. We are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. 
In the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 3, Paul writes about the building of this new temple. Christ is the foundation as well as the cornerstone. And we are the living stones of which the temple is constructed. Each piece shaped by who we are and what we do, the work we do, the service we perform. Paul counsels that just as Solomon's temple was constructed with craftsmanship and care, so we need to build our lives with the finest materials we can lay our hands on, gold, silver and costly stones, which will survive the fires of persecution and trouble, not wood, hay or straw, which will burn up at the first sign of stress and which will certainly not survive the day of reckoning when all our works will be tested before the throne of God. Paul says, if what's been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Well, this has been quite a, a meaty one, hasn't it? What lessons does that all leave me with? First, it makes me think about how I'm building my life. What materials am I using? Am I putting precious, eternal things into my mind or heart? Or is my focus on the wood and the straw which won't survive? And secondly, it reminds me yet again that church is not a building. It's a temple made of people and their service to God. And what's the main service he asks of us? It's a priestly service. We are a kingdom of priests. We believe in the priesthood of all believers, from the least to the greatest. It's a service of worship, sacrifice and intercession. As priests, we represent God to the people in our preaching, our teaching and our service. And we represent the people to God in our prayers and intercessions. When Jesus threw the traders out of the temple, he quoted Isaiah and declared, My house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. God's temple, the church, is for all nations and people, all races and classes. All are welcome here as they come to meet with God to bring their needs and their worries and to pray to the only one who hears our prayer and can answer through his grace and through the virtue of the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Oh
closing blessing may our hearts be open always to welcome you and our lives be open to welcome others may we build a house where God dwells and may its doors ever be swinging wide Amen, Amen.